0: Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Right then, Simon is going to carry on with our 1 Peter series. How are we doing? Just, I'm rocking the full suite of Access All Areas wristbands. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only benefit of arriving early. They give you every single wristband that they've got going just in case you need to get somewhere you can't. So um, I'd hate these things. Anyway, yeah, we're going to continue our uh, Living Differently series in one Peter today. Uh, I've got a tough job because all the guys who've spoken before me have done such a fantastic job. So I've got to really knock it out of the park this morning. And having slept on the canvas, I don't feel I can do that. But I, man- I can manage something. Let's go for it. So um, we're looking at 1 Peter 2, uh, 11 to 25 this morning. So uh, I'm going to pray and then we'll read through the uh, the section together. Father, we just thank you that you're at work over the whole face of the earth. And we're just so delighted to be part of your kingdom, part of your church. And Lord, whenever your church gathers in larger sections or amounts of God, it's just wonderful just to hear and see that demonstration of variety and... Uh, creativity and passion, God, that's present in your church. So, Lord, we just pray that uh, the guys at Wildfire this morning have a fantastic time. We pray we'll have a fantastic time here. And, God, we just want to be caught up more and more in what you're doing across the whole face of the earth. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 So, 1 Peter 2, either on your devices or on the screens. Let's read from verse 11 uh, down. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether it's the emperor, as the supreme authority, or to governors, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they held their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So, we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So, there's a lot in this section today, and I want to pick up on four uh, key themes really that we're going to look at today uh, living good lives, living submitted lives, living free lives, and living suffering lives. let's so remind ourselves of the context that Peter was speaking into. He was speaking into these different towns that are in modern day Turkey, all under Roman occupation. And he was speaking to the believers who lived in these towns and lived in these areas. And essentially they were, they were being oppressed, they were being uh, ostracised, they were being subject to uh, all sorts of persecution because of the Roman hostility towards them. And this is the, this is the context that Peter was writing this circular letter into. And the first thing Peter tries to do is he tries to remind them there's a bigger thing they're living for. There's something bigger than just what's immediately in front of them. Even though their immediate circumstances will be hard and difficult, he's encouraging them to lift their heads above what they can see in the natural to a bigger picture, to a bigger authorities. And he, we look right at the start of the, of the letter, how he says we're like these resident aliens with these people passing through. Uh, the term he used was sojourners, which means that you're someone travelling through a strange land on your way to your homeland, and that's what Peter tries to encourage the believers in this part of the uh, part of the world to do. They are travelling through; they are passing through on the way to their ultimate destination. And he uses all these allusions to the pilgrims travelling, the Israelites going through the desert on towards the promised land. And so he's trying to say, whatever your situation or your circumstance, you are journeying on to something greater, something more. And he's writing in a way to encourage them and to lift their heads to the bigger picture. And he wants them to really understand that rather than just focusing on where they're going to, they should focus on how they're living now, because how they live now has an effect on the people around them. They're called to be good witnesses. They're called to be people who act like a little window into the heart of God. And that's what you and I are called to as well. We're called not just to get through life with a minimum amount of pain or suffering or discomfort, you know, and and just get to the end. We're encouraged to live as witnesses, as followers of Christ. And so your life and my life becomes a little shop window into the heart of God. And that's both amazing and scary, isn't it? Because people look at you and think, wow, that's what God looks like. Wow, that's what God looks like. Yeah? Yeah? And wow, that's what God looks like. (coughs) Thank you. Um, And we don't often stop and think about that. We don't often say and think about actually our lives are like these little traveling shop windows that people are looking into the heart of God. So God's character and God's heart and God's purposes, his very nature is revealed through you and I as we seek to follow Jesus with these witnesses that that, uh, Peter refers to. And he says we're to live good lives amongst the pagans. And a, a pagan is simply somebody who doesn't yet know God. That's all. So we're to live good lives amongst the people who don't yet know God so they get an idea of what God looks like. Have you ever thought about your life in that way? Have you ever thought about your conduct uh, in your workplace or your conduct on the road or your conduct in a shop, in a queue or your conduct when somebody winds you up on the phone? All these are little windows that God presents for someone to look into the heart of God through you. And so we're called to live these good lives amongst the pagans. And Peter says we can do this in two ways. We can abstain from sinful desires and we can do good deeds. A couple of weeks ago, we were at the uh, HTB Leaders Conference in London and we heard a guy called John Maxwell speak. And John Maxwell, um, I, I I must confess, I judged John harshly. I'd read a few of his books on leadership and I thought, he's probably just a corporate suit and he's probably quite sort of... You know, sterile in his approach. And this guy came on stage and he cried for two hours about the heart of God and the gospel and his desire to see people come to know Jesus. And really, the whole leadership thing was kind of a side thing for him, even though God had called him to influence around 65,000 leaders a year. Um, he's got a personal ambition to see 200 people come to the Lord every year. He told an amazing story. He was doing a conference once and, uh, on leadership, I think with a, a big, big organisation. I think Walmart was the uh, organisation he was doing it for. And at the end of the training he delivered to them, he said, uh, Tomorrow I'm doing like a, an extra session. I'm going to share some of my story of faith. And so if any of you want to come along, uh, you can kind of hear that. It's a free session. You don't have to come. It's not part of the training. You can come along. And he spoke to the conference man. He said, Well, the only time we've got for you is 6 a.m. in the morning. And he thought, Well, who's going to come to hear my testimony at 6 a.m. in the morning? So anyway, he gets up the next day and he's walking across the car park towards the conference venue and the devil's whispering in his ear, no one is going to come, John. You're going to look like an absolute fool. Why are you doing this for? And he gets in the venue and there's 2,000 people waiting to hear his testimony. And he gives his testimony and I think he said 1,400, 1,200 people came to Christ. Um, But for all that, an incredibly humble man. And he said this very profound thing which I took away and wrote down in my book. We're all one step away from stupid. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, that's absolutely true. We're all one step away from stupid. Some of us closer than others. Small step, big step. Anyone resonate with that? Peter uses military language to describe what's happening against us. He says there's these... Um, sinful desires waging war against our soul Uh, and he's the imagery he paints here is like an attacking army coming to assault you coming to assault God's character and life in you sort of besieging you Um, coming to assault your well-being steal your peace undermine your witness there's this advance um, that's taking place and he exhorts us to abstain from these sinful desires, but the word that abstain. When we think about abstain, we always say, "Well, we're going to abstain from alcohol in January. We're going to abstain from chocolate in Lent." It's kind of this kind of passive, hasn't got a lot of power behind it. But the word in the Greek is much more. We're going to put off. We're going to push back. We're going to resist. And so, what, what he says we need to do is, we need to kind of put our front up to resist the front that's coming against us. And if we don't do that, if we don't recognise that this is a, is a war going on in our souls, we are closer to stupid than we think, because we're so close to doing something that's going to basically steal our peace or ruin our witness. Anyone read White Fang by Jack London? The first book I ever read. What a great book! Only that many? It's a classic, going out of print. Oh dear. Okay. It's a fantastic story. It's set in uh, the um, in Yukon in uh, in North uh, Canada. And there's a, a two guys who are taking a coffin across the wilderness to be t- to somewhere else. And they've got a dog sled team and a coffin on this dog sled and two guys. And as they travel through the wilderness, they start getting hunted by a pack of wolves. And every time they camp at night, they create a campfire and the, the wolves come and circle in around the campfire. These ravenous wolves pressing in around them. I, I want to read you a section uh, from it. It says Bill opened his mouth to speak but changed his mind. Instead he pointed towards the wall of darkness that pressed about them from every side. There was no suggestion of form in the utter blackness. Only could be seen a pair of eyes gleaming like live coals. Henry indicated with his head a second pair and a third pair. A circle of the gleaming eyes had drawn around their camp and now again a pair of eyes moved and disappeared and shifted only to appear moments later. So they're in the middle of the wilderness, they've got a campfire, blackness, darkness, woodland all around and the wolves are pressing in looking for an advantage. It's only the light of the fire and the heat of the fire that's keeping them back on the perimeter. Now Bill and Henry knew if they step away from that light and that heat then they're going to be food for the wolves quite quickly. In fact if you read the story you'll find out later on that actually poor old Bill does decide to go and take the wolves on in their own territory and he never comes back. So you're left with Henry. Henry's gradually getting his dogs eaten one by one every night. And literally, it's down to Henry in the coffin by the end of this first section of the story. And he's in the end, he builds a circle of fire around himself to protect himself from these wolves that are pressing in, looking for an advantage. And that's what the picture that Peter's trying to paint against these desires that are warring against your soul. They're looking for advantage, they're looking to come and steal peace. From you. And if we don't recognise we're in a war, if we don't recognise that these things are taking place, then we are very close to becoming doing something stupid that's going to undermine our very witness. John Maxwell also said this, which was very profound. He said, We have upward hopes, but downward habits. And so we often aspire to be someone better. We aspire to be more godly. We aspire to be more prayerful. We aspire to be this. But actually, unless we start with the hard work of looking at our lives and our habits, they're only ever aspirations. And he said, we've got to start working out how to go uphill towards the character that we, that we feel we should be or feel we, should, we want. But if we don't deal with these downward habits, then we're all, always going to be pulled back in that direction. Peter tells us that, Our well-being is not just for ourselves. It's for us because we're witnesses to the people around us. We're witnesses, these shop windows. It's so important to recognise that. Live good lives amongst the pagans. Even though these people might not understand you, they might mistreat you, they might ridicule you, they might persecute you, you're still called to live a good life amongst them because in that way you demonstrate the heart of God. Around AD uh, 112, there's a guy called Pliny the Younger. And he was a Roman governor of uh, Bithynia in Asia Minor. And he, wa- he wrote a letter to the emperor, uh, Trajan, because he wanted, to per- he wanted to legally take some Christians to court and, uh, and basically persecute them. Uh, and he wrote a letter to, um, to basically to the emperor. He said, to try and get a handle on how he could do this, he said, These- this is how he described the early Christian church. They're in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. Anyone fancy that? No. Okay. They sang an alternate verse, a hymn to Christ, as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, never to commit any fraud, theft or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble, to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. People... Had heard about uh, communion, the Passover, and they heard about the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, and there was a rumour that Christians were cannibals and they gathered together to eat flesh and blood. So, um, so Pliny was trying to figure out whether this was true. He went and had a look. No, actually, they just ate normal food. Uh, but they, they did this thing. They committed themselves to each other and they committed to this way of life. They bound themselves to a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds. Should we start doing that? this is the early church they gathered together and said right guys we are not going to do this we're not going to steal stuff we're not going to commit adultery we're not going to uh, when someone calls us to deliver something we're going to follow through on our promises we're going to live this way and they bound themselves together in a, in a solemn oath this is the early church in AD 112 literally 100 years old and uh, and the the Romans looked at them and went these guys are doing life differently they're, they're choosing to live differently in the context even under pers- even under Potential threat of arrest, they're looking to live differently. And so their, their behaviour was having an impact on the people around them. So how does, how does your behaviour impact the people around you? When they look into the window of your life, how, does, how do you bring God closer to them? It's really worth thinking about this week in your different places where you are, where you'll be. How does my conduct help draw someone closer to Christ? How can I live a good life and be a good witness They lived submitted lives. Submit yourself, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority. Even to the emperor. This is the emperor Nero who was persecuting them. And Peter writes, submit yourself to this oppressive authority. And Peter's readers are living in a society that has marginalized the Christians. Abused them. It was legal to beat your slave. It was legal to beat your wife in in this environment that they were living in yet peter says submit yourself to these authorities why would you want to submit yourself to an abusing authority well he gives us three key reasons he says submit yourself for the lord's sake in verse 13 christians are called to yield to authority not necessarily because we agree with it or even we respect it because we're yielding ultimately to a higher authority what peter's saying is lift your head past your boss past your mp past your president and look higher and look into the face of God because ultimately we come under submission for the Lord's sake and that's where submission starts and that means whoever's in authority over you they might be the best boss in the world they might be the worst boss in the world they might be the best government they might be the worst government we're called to submit underneath them because God has placed them there and we're called to do that out of respect for God we submit because of the Lord's sake and secondly, we submit because government is necessary. Not every all of us might think that all the time. You know, government is sometimes causes us to pull our hair out because they don't seem to be able to get anything right, or even agree. But Peter says these are people who are sent by Him. This is God to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Now, the Bible doesn't agree with all governmental policies, but there's something as a restraining way the government acts in society to kind of punish those who do wrong and reward those who do right and again we don't always get that right they don't always get that right but the government is placed there by god to act basically as a way of sort of containing human nature and preventing human nature from going wild i mean growing up i used to watch all sorts of programs about anarchy and all sorts of things you know they throw off the shackles and is it wolfie smith power to the people remember him you know, come the day of the revolution, you know, and all that, we'll, we'll throw off this, this tyranny. And, but if, re- if in reality we had no government, it would be horrendous. You know, if you were in trouble and you picked the phone, but no police came, no ambulance came, no fire service came if your house is on fire, no one came to collect your rubbish, no one made sure your water was on, no one made sure you had electricity. We, we need government within society. Not all government is good government, but government has been placed there by God. And it kind of forms a check to the sin that would be unrestrained in the human heart without some form of government. So scripture would say, some government is better than no government. That's what scripture would tell us, and that's the way we need to lean. So we submit to the government because it's necessary, that's in verse 14. And lastly, we submit for the sake of our witness, in verse 15, for it is God's will, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So when someone looks at you and looks into the window of your life, they should see, essentially, the best person you can be. You should be the best employee. You should be the best wife, the best husband, the best friend, the best family member, the best volunteer, the first to volunteer, the first to get involved, the first to help, the first to serve, because we're called to be witnesses and we're called to be people who reflect the nature of God. And so even if we're living under the worst government, people should still look at us and say, there's something different about these people. You should be the first, we should be the first to foster, the first to adopt. We should be the most hard-working people. We should work whether people are looking at us or not. We should live unto God and be different in our witness. When shouldn't we submit? Well, there are many instances in the Bible of civil disobedience, aren't there? In the early in the book of Acts, when the um, disciples were arrested and were forbidden to proclaim the gospel, they said, well, we've heard you, but we can't stop because our God has kind of commanded us to do that. And there's a good rule of thumb you can use here. We should disobey when the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. And so there's an opportunity for uh, civil disobedience, if you like, in this respect. So if you're in North Korea and the government is forbidding you from meeting together uh, to worship, uh, and to encourage each other where you would say actually I've heard your government but my scripture sort of commands me encourage me to do that so I'm still going to do it and I'm going to risk incurring a penalty or imprisonment but I can't deny what the, the direction of scripture says so I'm going to do it anyway and we'll do it peacefully we'll do it graciously but we're going to we're going to do it sometimes the answer is not easy um when uh when the American Civil War was beginning to bubble with the Patriots in America, John Wesley was very much against um, uh, sort of anybody who was a Methodist taking up any arms or, or um, in any way, sort of resisting the, what they perceive as English oppression. Well, Francis Asbury was his first um, sort of primary disciple who went and took Methodism to America, and he was very much for taking up arms and basically resisting um, uh, the English oppression. So he had two incredibly godly prayerful theologians who were taking a different stance on a situation that was happening in front of them. So we often face with these difficult situations in, in life and we have to nuance how we respond to them. In 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. led some marches in a place called Selma, Alabama. Anyone seen the film? I'll play a clip for you in a second. Uh, and these marches were organised by uh, non-violent activists to try and uh, help with voting rights for African-American citizens who were continually... Um, either blocked or prevented from voting, even though they theoretically had a vote. It was their constitutional right to vote. And um, and these these marches took place on the border um, from um, Salma into into Montgomery. And they were peaceful marches. They were were there just purely to demonstrate um, people's right to vote. And the first two times there was was violence, there was pushback by the authorities, and lots of people were injured. uh, All the... Marchers were pacifists, but the authorities really went very heavy-handed on them. And that only drew more attention and more support. I want to show you a little tiny clip from the film. The President doesn't want us to march today. The courts don't want us to march. But we must march. We must stand up. We must make a massive demonstration of our moral certainty. I'm so glad. We're here together today, yeah. I thank you for standing up, for we shall be victorious in our quest, yeah. we shall cross the finish line hand in hand, yeah. for we yeah. shall overcome. Yeah. All right. It's a really powerful film, I don't recommend it to you if you haven't seen it, uh, it dramatises the, um, the documenta- documented footage that took place there. But those non-violent marches, they made a huge difference because they, uh, they put pressure on the president on the government and there was a whole reform around the vote, Voting Rights Act that took place and it was, um, it was classed as a landmark achievement um, for the civil rights movement. So those guys decided that they had to do something. They had to kind of uh, respond in a non-threatening, civil disobedient way. And, um, and sometimes we get called to do the same you might be called to do something and respond in a way that causes you to stand up against what the, um, what the government uh, is putting over you. But we're not in the same situation that these guys were uh, under Roman oppression. Many of us won't ever experience a similar thing to this. But we are called to live under authority, that God has placed there for our protection, and to be the best citizens we can be. And the best gift you can be to somebody else is to be the best you can be. You know, so your ethic should be I'm working on to God, I'm gonna do this on to God, whatever the circumstances around me. We're not called just to go with the prevailing culture, we're called to stand against it. We're also called to live free lives. Peter says, Live as free people, don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God. Again, honour the emperor, honour this oppressive figure. And again, he reminds us: no matter what your circumstances are, you, are, you can live free. Uh, Christ sets you free. We've just done freedom in Christ. We, you know, The whole purpose of that is saying that Christ sets you free. You don't have to live under the, 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 the influence of your past. You don't have to live under the influence of your circumstance. You can be free in Christ to live how you want to live. And that's a, a very powerful thing. Sometimes we think we just, we, you know, we... We act more like um, thermometers than thermostats. We just respond to things around us. You know, We just respond to the ambient temperature in culture or, or, in, or in our families or in church. And we just, kind of, we just become th- thermometers. We just reflect what's happening. But God says, you're a thermostat. You can, try, you can change culture. You're called to change atmospheres, change temperatures, change culture. You, the way you live and the freedom that you live under means that you can bring change to the people around you. And no matter what's going on, no matter how tough it is, Peter would say, live free. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You know, don't use it that way. Don't, don't use that freedom that you have just to get away with things. Just to do things that aren't honouring to God. The people around us in some way are enslaved. If, if you don't know Christ, you're enslaved to something. You might be enslaved to your past, you might be enslaved to your future, you might be enslaved to your job, or your situation or to sin, or whatever else it might be, you're enslaved. But in Christ, you're free. But Peter says, now live as a slave to God. Freely choose to serve him. There was a concept in the, in the Old Testament, something called a bond servant. Okay, a bond servant was a servant who so loved the family he was placed in, that he or she chose to stay with that family past the amount of time that they were due to serve. And so... Um, the owner, of the, the owner of them would take them to the doorpost of the house and take a awl which is basically a big pointy needle, and they pierced their earlobe to the doorpost of the house. was a way of saying they were bound to the family. But they weren't bound to the family by any kind of legalism or oppression. They were bound because they so loved being in that family, being in that house, they wanted to be there forever. And so we're called, Peter says, to be bond servants to, to God. We, we serve God and we honour him first, not because we're oppressed or because we're controlled or manipulated, but we've decided to pierce our ear to the doorpost of heaven, haven't we? We've decided to, to throw our lot in with God and we say, God, I'm going to be a bond servant. And Exodus twenty one says that person will be a servant for life. Decided, fully committed to bond with that family. And so we're not enslaved by the world, but we choose to become God's slaves. We choose to bind ourselves to him and his heart and his purposes. And that's how we choose to use our freedom. That slave didn't have to go to the doorpost. That slave didn't have to become aligned with that family. (laughs) You don't have to become aligned to God. You don't have to do what pleases God. But Peter says, live it in a way that reflects the heart of God. Become his slave. Become his agent, his hands and feet to the people around you. He says, show proper respect to everyone. And that's a throwaway line, but it's quite tough, isn't it? <laughs> that's just in there. But if we actually took, took stock throughout the week and say, how many times we fall short of doing that very simple sentence? Show respect to everyone. And that means everyone. Always in the Greek, everyone means everyone. It's really good to know. Okay, So it just means everyone. And that doesn't matter whether you like them or not. That doesn't matter whether you've a long-standing disagreement with them or not. That doesn't matter whether they've hurt you or fallen out with you or said bad things about you. Show proper respect to everyone. The person who cuts you up, the person who doesn't let you out. What does roads bring out the worst in people? I mean, but that, you know, if you want to see what your witness looks like, what's your driving like? What goes on in that car? Show proper respect to everyone. Use your freedom... Because you are free, use that freedom as a way of giving a gift of respect to every person you meet. Love the family of believers. Again, that's a powerful witness when you demonstrate love to one another. Again, not just the people you like or your friends or the people you've known a long time. How can you show love to a new person, someone you've never met? The great thing about going camping with a few folks is they go. I didn't know that person was in our church. I didn't know you were in our church, and they start to form a relationship. There's lots of new people in Riverside. Make it your mission to speak to a new person every week. The worst thing that happens is well, I've been here twenty years, and I go, oh, sorry, I used that all the time. You know that's the worst thing that can happen. Are you new here? No, I've been here ten years. What's the worst that can happen? I'm sorry, you know, I've got terrible memory for names or faces. Make it your mission. To go and show love to new people and to each other. The family believers. Fear God. Live in that way that your eyes are lifted towards him. That's where your freedom is used. So even under, under oppression, even under the harshest conditions, Peter says live in an opposite spirit. You don't have to be a thermometer. You know, if people are grumbling around you, you be the one who's not grumbling. You know, if people around you are down, you be the one that's positive. If people around you don't have much faith, you be the one who's got more faith. If people around you are helpless, you be the one who's helpful. If you're in a workplace where everyone's shirking off, you be the one that works hard. Whatever it is, be someone who brings a change to the environment that you're in. That's what Peter says. Live differently. And lastly, the one that none of us is really comfortable with, live suffering lives. Peter writes into this context of slaves. Now, the, the, the slaves. The slaves are living in Roman households and some of them have fair masters and some of them have oppressive, unfair masters. And he says that some of them are going to get beaten unjustly. You know, imagine living in a household where a master would beat you. You did, you did the best you could do. You did everything you should do. You, you went beyond. But your master still beat you and oppressed you unjustly. And Peter says, if you, if you suffer in that way, it is commendable to God. And you think, well, hang on a minute, that just sounds really abusive. And it was abusive to the people who were living under it, but Peter was saying, lift your head and recognise there's a big authority at work. And if you can live under oppression and suffering, even though you are doing the right thing, then you are mirroring your Saviour. Because Jesus suffered greatly for doing nothing wrong. Amen? And Peter says he left us a model. He leaves us a model for, t- for suffering. And we don't really like to embrace suffering because suffering isn't very vogue anymore for Christians. We try and do everything to avoid any form of discomfort. But to be twin with Christ is also to be twin with his suffering. Paul says, didn't he, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. And that was a bold prayer to pray. Because he knew that through suffering came resurrection life. He knew through suffering with Christ, he would gain a greater understanding of resurrection life. And the whole essence of this letter we've talked about is that somehow through suffering and adversity and persecution, somehow your faith is refined. It's proved authentic. It's distilled. And it's made something that's of greater value because it's been tested it's been put under strain, under load, and it's proved to be genuine. And that's what's so incredible about Christians who suffer in places of persecution. I'm reading a book called Just Mercy by a guy called Brian Stevenson. Again, I heard him at the uh, HTB conference. He's an American defence lawyer, and he works hard uh, on trying to get equal rights, particularly for people on death row, because he's recognised that a lot the huge majority of, of men on death row are, are people of colour or people of very poor background. And because of a lack of defence and a lack of proper legal representation, they find themselves pushed through the courts and they're waiting death sentences. And uh, he's written an incredible book called Just Mercy. And I want to read you, um, just read you a section of it. So he's just starting out and he's, um, he's, uh, he's wet behind the ears lawyer knows nothing about anything but he he recognises that there's this inequality so he he starts to go to youth groups and churches and community centres and try and talk to people and explain to them the situation and um, he said he was in a poor rural county in Alabama and he went to speak to a, a crowd of about 20 people and at the back of the room was an older black man in a wheelchair and this black man just fixed Brian with a steely unwavering gaze throughout his whole talk and completely unnerved him no matter what he said or how he said it, this guy just fixed him with this unwavering gaze. And at the end, uh, this guy got wheeled up to Brian. And um, Brian was kind of terrified what he might say to him. And uh, he said, do you know what you're doing? And Brian was like, well, I'm kind of you know, telling them. And, do you know what you're doing? And he, do you know what you're doing? And this went on for quite a while. And Brian was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and he said, you're beating the drum for justice. And uh, he said, I want to, This is the section I want to read to you. He said, you see this scar on top of my head? And he tilted his head to show me. I got that scar in Green County, Alabama, trying to register to vote in 1964. You see the scar on this side of my head? I turned a sort of four-inch scar above his ear. I got a scar in Mississippi, demand, uh, demanding civil rights. His voice grew stronger. He tightened his grip on my arm and lowered his head some more. You see that mark? a dark circle at the base of his skull I got that bruise in Birmingham after the children's crusade he says people look at me intensely and people think it's just an old man covered in scars cuts and bruises he said for the first time I noticed there were tears in his eyes he placed his hand on my, on my arm and said they aren't my scars they aren't cuts and bruises these are my medals of honour as Christians how many, how many medals of honour do we carry Know, how, many, how many scars for Christ do we carry in trying to do the right thing, in trying to go in the opposite spirit? Most of us hate the thought of any kind of discomfort or pain coming our way. But there's people out there who are trying to live the right way and trying to do the right thing, and it's costing them dearly. At the Open Doors Conference a couple of weeks ago, I heard a story of um, some Anglican. Uh, Priests got to- taken to China, and they got um, taken to a, a Chinese church so- sort of meeting with some local pastors. And the first thing the pastors did was said, um, "So, what wounds for Christ have you received this week?" And the Anglican guys sort of looked at each other and went, uh, "We're from England; um, we don't kind of get wounds for Christ." Uh, and they- all these Chinese kind of leaders looked at each other and went, know, yeah, silly English pastors. Let's explain to them." Um, <laughs> Is there no devil in your country? And they kind of looked at each other and said, well... And they said, let, let us explain. If you go and confront the evil in your town or your city, you will get wounds for Christ. And one of these priests was so convicted by this encounter, he went back to inner-city London, and he thought, what's, my, what's the biggest evil around here that I need to confront? And he thought, it's going to be street gang, it's going to be gang culture. So he went up to a group of young lads and said, can I be your gang chaplain and they kind of looked at him and went, I suppose so. So he became gang chaplain to this group of young teenage lads. And he began to influence them and meet with them. And none of them had decent father figures or, or male role models in their lives. And he began to hang out with them and change them. And then a big knock came at the vicarage door. And he opened the door and this huge guy stood there. And this guy says, Le- leave off my kids. Leave off my kids. They run my drugs. Leave off my kids. And this uh, priest said, well... They're not your kids, they're God's kids, so I'm not leaving off. And guess what? Then the wounds started to come. The vandalism and the, uh, and the threats. And, the, uh, and ultimately, he was baptising one of these young uh, men in his church and a bullet came through the window and lodged in the wall. Uh, and he realised that by living in the culture we're living in, in, the UK, he was kind of flying, you know, keep his head below the parapet, and by meeting these Chinese folks who said, go and find the evil in your town, your city, and confront it. And you will encounter backlash. You will encounter suffering because we, we follow a suffering king, don't we? We follow a, a suffering servant who is Christ. And sometimes we think it's our goal to get through life without incurring any scars, any bruises. Let's just keep our head down. No one will notice us if we just keep down. <laughs> and we'll somehow sneak through to heaven and we'll have made it. But Peter says no. Live in such a way, under oppression, that basically you will you will experience suffering. And if you suffer, even though you're doing right, because sometimes it's easy to understand suffering in the context of doing something wrong, isn't it? I'm doing something wrong. He says here, if you, you know, if you're a bad servant, a bad slave, and you get beaten, well, not that you should beat slaves, but that's kind of a, you know that's kind of what's going to happen. You know, you, there's, there's a reason. But sometimes when we do, we live our lives well. And we still suffer. We can't add up. We think, well, this, is, this shouldn't be like this. But Peter says we have a, a model in Christ who didn't even open his mouth to speak against when he was being convicted and tried and crucified. He chose not to try and defend himself. And sometimes you'll be in a suffering situation where you think, I'm doing everything right, but I'm still suffering. Where you're getting your medals of honour. You're getting your wounds for Christ. And the more as a church we try and influence communities and influence society, it will get harder. It will get tougher. So you might want to press the button now and get off the bus if that's what you want. Because as you confront evil, there is backlash. There is confrontation. And things do get more difficult. But your witness also becomes much more powerful. You're not convinced, are you? I can see. Paul says, I want to participate in his sufferings in Philippians 3.10. It's a bold prayer. Would you ever dare to pray it? I want to participate in his sufferings so I can somehow gain a better understanding of my resurrection life. I can somehow have my faith refined in a greater way. It says in Hebrews that some people refused to be released from prison under torture because they wanted to gain a better resurrection. They believed that their persecution was distilling and refining their faith. Squeezing it out, distilling it out into something of higher purity and value. But to encourage us, Peter says, whatever wounds we receive on earth, he says, by his wounds you're healed. So, regardless of how much of a battering you take down here, how much um, ultimately we are healed in God. And sometimes we take this verse and think, well, actually, that means we should never get sick. But actually, there's ultimate healing in Christ. Because we do get battered and scarred on this earth, and we grow old and we grow weary. But ultimately, we find our healing in him. Because of the suffering and beating he took, then ultimately we have ultimate healing in him. And that's, again, we lift our eyes to that above our circumstances. So it's the essence, guys, of this whole section this week is getting you to think about how can I lift my head above my circumstance? You know, if my boss is being difficult, if my friends or my family or something happens to me this week, how can I lift my head above that and see Christ? ruling calling me home that's where my home is i've got this upward hope towards christ and eternity and the house of god and that's i'm a pilgrim traveling towards that destination and yes things get messy and hard on the journey but we have these upward hopes and can we start to tackle our downward habits we don't we don't want to be one step away from stupid we want to get away from that cliff edge we want to pull back and say I recognise there's a sinful desire there there's something happening here that's warring against me I'm going to take a stand against that and I'm going to resist that and I'm going to use the freedom that I have in Christ to act differently because Christ has called you to be the most effective ambassadors on the earth we said before there's no plan B there is only plan A and that's you Okay? so you are Christ's shop window this week you are Christ's shop window as people look at you i will say there's something different about those guys let's stand together thank you for listening if you would like to contact us about this talk to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable then visit our website at riversideuk.org also you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at whitriverside